Let's take our Bibles now and turn to Psalm 86. Psalm 86, if you're visiting with us, we've been spending much of our summer in the Psalms together, uh, taking them in sequence. And so coming to Psalm 86, which is the only prayer of David recorded for us in the third book of the Psalms. And so beautiful in its bringing before us, I think, several themes of being mindful of who we come before in the ways that we pray together. So let's hear these words together, paying special attention to God's words, Psalm 86, to this prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you, you are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great. And do wondrous things, you alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. As far the reading of God's holy and inspired word may apply it to our hearts and to our lives this evening. Let's ask him to do that in prayer. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, as we draw near to you, and as we call out to you, even in the words of David, to incline your ear to us, Father, we are thankful that you do more than that. But you, be, you promise to be present even here in this place where two or more are gathered in your name. You are with us by way of your word, an incarnate word who has walked among us. And Father, now a spirit who has written that word, that law upon our hearts. And so, Lord, as we humble ourselves before your word, Father, your servant humbles himself before you, knowing what you have called him to do and the great and awesome and awful responsibility you have given. And so I pray for a full measure of the unction of your power and Holy Spirit that I will speak, Father, very words that you have given, that you would use even me as a mouthpiece to proclaim good news to your people, and that, Father, with open ears and open hearts and ready hands, Father, we would receive that word and give you all thanks and praise for it. So would you be near to us according to your promise? Would you hear us for the sake of Christ? And we ask this in his name. Amen. 
Well, children of God called to be saints, I'm a child of the King, a child of the King. With Jesus, my Savior, I'm a child of the King. It's the beautiful refrain of an old hymn that many of you know. And the wonder of needing to hear that refrain over and over again, even now, is the fact that we don't think about it very much. It's truth we don't always remember. That we are children of the King as those found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. The children of a King. Think of that. And that King, our Father, is an all-powerful, sovereign King who is working all things in every moment by the power of His providence. That's the kind of King that we've been made the sons and daughters of. It's why we can be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. That is the God we approach as we pray. But not just approaching again as just one all-holy or just one almighty, though we do not forget those things, we come to our Father through Jesus Christ, His Son. We are His children. We have access to the throne in His Son. So that no matter what is going on in our lives, but especially in moments of distress and crisis, we have clear path. We have open door to be able to come and lay our lives before that King. So children, I want you to imagine tonight that you live in a palace. Can you imagine? You live in a palace and your dad is a king. And not just any king, but he is the greatest of all kings, able to do all things. Anything that you would ask of him, he would be able to do. Would you come to him and ask? Would you come to your father knowing that no matter what you brought in goodness and truth, he would hear you and he would answer you and he would do more than you asked? It sounds pretty amazing. It sounds completely awesome. Would you come? And even in saying that question now a second time, we hear that and say, duh, of course we would come. We would always come. We would keep coming. We would always draw near. Would you come and ask him for the help that you need? Or ask the question a different way. Would he have to teach you to ask? That would be super weird. That would be crazy. I mean, none of us as fathers have to come to our kids and say, hey, do you want to ask us? In fact, sometimes we're like, hey, can you stop asking? Would you come and ask? You see, your father, your heavenly father, is a holy, almighty perfect and powerful king. 
He calls you his son. He calls you his daughter. You are children of the king. With Jesus, my savior, my elder brother, and my friend, I am a child of the king. A king who has made each of us great covenant promises he always keeps. A king who desires us to seek him with boldness at his throne of grace. Confidently coming, seeking the help that we need because he's able to do more than hear, but he's also able to answer. In fact, he is faithful to do so. But do we come? Do we ask? Do we live in the reality of the truth that we are children of the King? Do we know that we are praying to a sovereign of the covenant? And so here in this psalm, that's what David brings before us. And we don't know at what point David is writing this psalm. We don't know the struggle that he has, though, as being students of the Scriptures. David had a lot of problems and issues at any number of different times in his life. But he doesn't forget his identity. He doesn't forget who he is. He doesn't forget his need to come. And so whatever his particular struggle here, we know that he needs help because in Psalm 86, and as you read it, you can start to hear that there are 14 direct pleas to, in the Hebrew, Adonai, to the sovereign. He's calling out to his king for help. And yet David's confidence swells and resolves throughout this this psalm In the four uses of the name Yahweh, the Lord's faithful, covenant-keeping name. And so he's calling out to a king for help, but he knows that king, and he knows the promises of that king, and he will continue to present himself before that king. For the Lord rules sovereignly. There is nothing outside of his control and power that he is not working And yet he is steadfast in love faithfully. So as a child of the king tonight, will you remember who you are? Will you remember who he is? Will you remember who you belong to, in whom your comfort is found? And who you can be confident in approaching in your prayers? That in our distress, in our need of whatever sort... We offer continual prayers to a sovereign ruling covenant keeper. And David's going to lay out the way of that kind of prayer for us tonight in recognizing what it is about that sovereign that we are to praise and to remember. And the first thing is this in verses 1 through 6, that he is a sovereign who hears. He's a king who hears. And if you think about that, think about that in terms of who God is. God being almighty, far above us, holy in every way, who takes those moments to hear you. Creation of the dirt, like a vapor, grass green in the morning, withered ere the close of day. And he hears you. He knows you. 
every one of your hairs, every one of your heartbreaks. He knows all of it. And so being heard in general is a great blessing of having other people hear us and not only hear us but care and and show compassion and empathy and, and seek to be willing to help us in our need. There is great blessing in being heard, but But how much more when we consider an almighty sovereign who is never too busy to hear us, who is never too preoccupied to act on our behalf, who is always ruling and reigning and caring for us. And so David has to come to him. And we need to come to him because we're powerless to do anything we ask for. That David, in the long list, and why he has to cry out to that king and to that covenant-keeping God so often is that, I don't have the power, Lord, Adonai, Yahweh. I don't have the power to make any of it happen. And so at the beginning of a prayer is worked humility. Maybe that's why we don't come as often as we should. Because as children, we get a little bit big for our britches and we think we can do everything that we need to without mom or dad. But usually sometime around age 25-ish, you come back to realize just how good mom and dad were to you and just how much they did and how much they cared. So instead of waiting that long, why wouldn't we just humble ourselves at the beginning and call out to a father who is able to help us in our need yet coming with confidence to one who hears. And look then at the description of those that he hears. That's the power of the psalm here. That it isn't just whoever screams out and cries out the loudest, but what David is called to, even in taking that posture of humility, is now to recognize how he is to come and who he is to be. And how he is to live. Not that that guarantees. Christ is our guarantee that the Father hears. But in a way of humility and submission. Placing ourselves before the Lord. Calling out to him for that help. In verse 1 we see that he hears the needy. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. For I am poor and needy. I am afflicted. There is struggle and conflict in my life that I am not able to do anything with, but you can. I need your help. I need your presence every passing hour. I need your grace to foil the tempter's power. I'm needy. You see, kids, when you don't need something, typically you don't ask for it. But why do we say thank you even when we receive the things that we might be able to do for ourselves or provide for ourselves? Because we recognize that it's all gift. That here is how God has provided for us. And so come before the Lord in your prayers, recognizing that you have need, that you have great need. But don't come asking the Lord unless you believe that he will do and give that which you ask. Don't come asking for things and then in the second breath being like, yeah, but he's never going to do that. Or he's not able to do that. That would be insulting. So in verse 2, we see that he hears the trusting. Preserve my life, for I am godly. 
not godly in himself of, I deserve this, but I am one that lives in relationship with you. I am one that walks with you. And so hear me, not on the basis of that, but more on the salvation of your servant who trusts in you. This is what you've called me to, Father. This is what a king is. This is what a covenant keeper does. And yet, what does David do to remind himself of that truth? What is he calling out to in some ways an aside, but, but a necessary reminder? That dash there is important. You are my God. This is relational. And so when we get into those moments of struggle, I'm not placing all my eggs in my godliness, but in the trust, in the faith that you have given to me, I will not only live before you, but I will claim that promise. And that, brothers and sisters, in our affliction, in our distress, in our crisis, is what we have to keep speaking into our own hearts. You are my God. I know this is hard, but you are my God. It means you are using these circumstances for your glory and my good. I know you are working my sanctification. I know that you are calling me to greater dependence upon you. So I'll trust. I'll pause and I'll consider that you're my God. That isn't going to change. I'm not going to stop being your child. But as a child, I'm also going to keep asking. In verse 3, we see that he hears the persistent. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. And that understanding of crying upon the Lord here is waiting. And kids, when you hear that word waiting, we don't like it, right? We don't want to wait in a line. We don't want to wait for Christmas. We don't want to wait for a birth. We don't want to wait for anything. But David is saying, But you, my good king, I will wait for you. His soul waits. His soul longs. I'm going to wait. I know you will answer. I know you will work. And so that's why I'm going to keep asking. Maybe, kids, you remember the, the parable of the persistent widow, right? And she keeps coming to the judge, and she keeps coming, give me justice, give me justice, And the judge says, well, I don't really care for justice anymore, but because this woman keeps coming, I'm going to give it to her. Well, pastor, I prayed for relief like twice, and God didn't give it to me. What am I supposed to do now? Pray. And then do it again. And then do it again. And again. And again. And there are those moments of grace that come in the midst of that where you receive what you've asked for. (laughs) And it brings tears to your eyes. And a reminder again that we just trust. We trust in very ordinary things like prayer, knowing that the Lord, our King, will do extraordinary things in His time. But in order to keep doing that, we have to recognize our need for Him. Our dependence upon him. And that's what he says in verse 4. Glad in the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. I am bringing before you, I am presenting to you my whole being. Every bit of my life is yours. Every bit of my trust, every bit of my hope, every bit of my assurance. I'm yours. Not only are you mine, 
but I'm yours. That we can be glad in the midst of our sorrows and our trials and our tribulations and struggles because of that reality. Because we come before a king. That we can be brought in great trust in the Lord's character and in the conviction that he sees and he knows and he will act and he will answer. Because we know that he's faithful. The one who hears you is faithful. Faithful to hear those who call on him in truth. Look at verse 5. For you, O Lord, here is David laying it out again. You, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all those who call on you. It's the truth that is shared in Psalm 103. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. I know that you're working. You are faithful to your word. I have no reason to doubt that. I have no reason to be discouraged. Because not only is he faithful to hear, but he's almighty to act. To hear and act for those who call on him in truth. Verse 6, give ear, O Lord, and here now is the confidence. Give ear, O covenant-keeping God, who has made great promises to me that will be fulfilled in the Son that you have promised. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. And that seems to be a strange turn here because what we've been brought before right away in the beginning, I am poor and needy. Preserve my life. I'm godly, which means there's some kind of struggle. But now David lays out saying what? It might be me. That the problem is me. That the plea comes from recognizing his own sinful brokenness and the fact that he doesn't deserve to ask for any of the things he's asked for. Humility in verse 1, humility in verse 6. And yet that's what gives him boldness to ask a great king for a great salvation according to his promise. So all of the rest of that is gone, and he's asking now for one thing, I plead for grace. I don't need anything else. Just that one thing. And I know you will hear and you will act. And so as we come in our prayers, and maybe sometimes that's why we don't come, Because in that wrestle of our hearts with our own sin, we start to define ourselves by that. I'm just a sinner. I'm just broken. Why would God ever listen to me? Why why would he do any good to me knowing that I'm all unrighteousness? You see, children, when you do the wrong thing, your first tendency is to what? You want to run away from your parents. You want to get away from authority. You don't want them to find out what you've done. You want to try to hide that, even as Adam and Eve tried to hide it from God. 
And yet what David here is doing is reminding us of what a relationship with a true father and a good king is. Because he runs to him and he pleads for grace. You see, the beauty of the grace that God provides for us according to his promise is one in which no matter what we may have done, we can always run to him. We never have to run away from him. We always come to him. We run to Jesus. We ask for that grace because he is a good and gracious king. And so as Dane Ortland writes in his commentary on the Psalms, as you ponder your sinfulness, ponder his graciousness. Don't stop remembering that you are a child of the king in Christ. But if that is your call, and you remember who your king is, who keeps great promises, then come to him again. It says in Joel 2, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, turn again, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He will be gracious to you. That's his promise to all sinners who call out to him in faith. And he will do far more than just that. And so that's the wonder of the fact that he is a sovereign who not only hears us, but he's a sovereign who continues to be faithful to teach us. And so he hears us in the second place then in kindness, but he continues to teach us the lessons that we need to hear. And that, too, should drive us to him in our times of crisis and struggle. Because where else are we going to go? To whom else can we go for help? But to whom else can we go for the advice and the words of life that he gives? But we don't come. That's a little bit of what David is expressing in this next section of the psalm. And so, kids, it would be like living in that palace that you've started imagining and maybe are still a little bit, and there's King Dad, and hopefully he has a totally sick crown on his head and a really nice throne, but you've come, but have you? You see, as David progresses in the psalm, if we're not going to come to the Lord, it's like living in a palace with King Dad and never asking for his help. Never coming into his presence. Never making your needs known. Never making any of those requests known. You might remember that you're a child of the king, but it doesn't operate in any way, shape, or form. And that would be totally ridiculous. Who would do that? Who would live that way? And yet, Christian, we don't come to the Father. Maybe as a last-ditch effort, maybe when the dumpster fire of our life finally has gotten so hot that we don't know what else to do with it. Why not come? Are you still so prideful to think you can handle everything yourself? Why not just come? The Father is willing to hear. The Father is willing to help. There's nothing he can't help with. And so even here to David, he shows himself kind once again to teach him 
again and again to remind us and to teach us of who He is and what He's done and, and why we should have every confidence as we approach that throne of grace. Because He comes and draws near to us in His Word to teach us about who He is and what he's done. Look again at verses 7 and 8. In the day of my trouble, I call on you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. What God teaches us by way of these verses is confidence. He's going to hear, he's going to answer, and there is no God like my God. What a confidence. This is the one that I come to. Who is like you, Exodus 15, 11, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? Do we doubt who God is? Of course we do when we won't come. And yet he's there continuing to call out to you. Continuing to teach you again and again and again that he is able and he is willing and he is powerful. And so, brothers and sisters, let this be your default in those times of crisis, in that struggle of trouble. Here it is. Who is like our God? And be directed to his promise, not only for you, but in recognizing what he is doing in working his plan for all of his people. Because he moves to teaching not only who he is and what he's done, past tense, but now he wants to move it to the present and to what he's going to do. Verses 9 and 10, look again. All the nations you have made shall come, future. They will come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name For you are great and do wondrous things, which means if he is great, he will be great. And if he has done and is doing, he will do wondrous things. You alone are God. What a picture that you are using all of these things in my life, even these hard things, even these trials, to keep moving me towards Zion what we read about in Belgic 37, of being able to see the wonder that each of those steps and each of those paths that we take, that's where we're going. Because he is the one that has not only done great works in creation, but he's done wondrous deeds, that word that we've looked at throughout the Psalms, saying here are his works of redemption. Here are his works of salvation on behalf of his own, which means if that group of people is going to gather, he's going to have his elect. And if we are his children, we will be there. What is he going to do? It's the prophet's joy in Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip." David is being brought to that teaching again. I am not only alone, God, but I am sovereign. 
I am singular and I am sovereign. There is none like me. My name is great, not just because it's a name, but it's because of who I am and what I do and what I will always do. Is that your trust? Is that your confidence? That in those trials, in knowing where we're headed, does it lead you to him knowing, I, I don't know how this plan works itself out, but I know you, and I am your child, and you are a sovereign king who keeps his word. But how do we live that way? How, how, how is that going to make a difference every day? Not just in the trials or the crisis, but in those moments where things seem pretty good too. And so here the sovereign teaches then about his way. And so we see the, the attitude even here in this section change. From a confidence in terms of, I want to make known what you have taught me. But I want to humble myself again to say, but I don't know it all yet. That David here is striking out at the arrogance of age. Oh, I've seen that all before. I know that. What does this guy who's preaching to me, who's half my age, have anything to say to me about life and hardship and trial? It's the arrogance of age. And so here, David, even in his age, and again, whatever age that is, is humbling himself again to say what? Teach me. I still have need to be taught that these trials that you've brought into my life, they're a part of that. Look again at verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. But then he asks for something else. Unite my heart to fear your name. You see, where he's leading us and teaching us, now after that proclamation of confidence, is now to a call to consecration. How am I set apart to God? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. So help me to know, how, how am I to walk in your truth. Help me to know how I can follow more nearly and love more dearly. Psalm 25, 5, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. I need to be taught. And I can't go to anyone else for that which I need. So let me walk this way. Let me follow you in those big footsteps we talked about last week. But then do a work in me. So not only something external, that walk, but change my heart. Change my motivation. Change my longings. Unite my heart to fear your name. Make my often divided heart one. And that ultimately might be the struggle that David is having. Because I know I'm going to Zion, but I really like the stuff of where I am now. And I know this is where you're calling me to be, but this is my delight. And it feels like that weird two-faced, multiple personality split. And David says, bring it back together. 
knit me back together in the ways that I've sought to divide my heart, make it whole again. Write on it again. Bring it into greater conformity. Shape it to the way that your heart is shaped. Bring me into greater unity with you and your people. Bring me to real fear and reverence so that my walk would be sincere, that my faith would be true, and that both would be fixed on you and your word. And when we know that, that, that's the joy of salvation. That's the joy of knowing that it is good to be near God. It is that wonder of saying, you have met me and you are teaching me. And when we're brought to that place, then the Lord says, and now I will teach you about my thanks. Verse 12, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. It's what should be rendered to a good and gracious king. I give you thanks with my whole heart and I will glorify your name forever. God, this thing that you've made whole, now I want to use it for your praise. In every way and in everything, it's yours. And I will glorify your name forever. And yet that's the struggle, right? Because I want single-mindedness. I want single-heartedness. But that struggle against sin in the flesh is real. But that's the importance of coming and confessing not only your confidence in who God is, but saying that you will consecrate me, you will sanctify me, you will change me, and you will correct my heart and my life in such a way that I will be brought to you in thanks, to you a great sovereign king who gives the victory in Jesus Christ my Savior. And in being taught that kind of security in confidence and consecration, it drives us to the utmost praise. Of whom? You see, those trials in life teach us that it's ultimately not about us, but that it's about the Lord. It's about that sovereign, which drives the beauty then of being taught what at the end of the day. Verse 13, for great is your steadfast love toward me. <laughs> my steadfast love is not great and is not steadfast, but yours is. You have delivered my soul from the place of the dead. He teaches us his love in the most extraordinary way in the deliverances he works. So why won't we come? This is what he's doing. It's who he is. It's what he promises to do. We come before one always patient and long-suffering with us. As we are so hard-headed and hearted so often in terms of the lessons that he teaches. And yet he's still faithful and kind and gracious. So that we would be given to him wholly. Now we pray but certainly in the last day in thankful trust and praise. And that's the story of a king, a covenant-keeping God who gives grace upon grace upon grace.
and everything we could need. And so David's prayer resolves then in making known a sovereign who gives. And that in the last place tonight. Because I want to ask you this when you hear that word about the Lord. Do we believe that we pray to a God that gives generously, abundantly, rich in grace and generosity? Or in your prayers, does it seem that you are coming before a God who is stingy and tight-fisted? And maybe you haven't thought about it, but do so now. Because we should be as children of that king, people who don't even think twice about asking great things of a great God. We ask for far too little because we think too little of our God. Because we think too little of what it is to be his children. Hey kids, when you ask your dad for the things that you need, and again, need, not like I need Lamborghini tomorrow, right? Like the things that you need. Does he want to say no to you? And again, maybe, maybe there are bad dads out there. I pray not here, right? But if you come to your dad with a need, with a longing of your heart, if he's able to provide it, he's going to. In fact, not only is he going to, he wants to. He delights in it. He delights to see your response and reaction to it. If your dad was that king dad, again, with a really cool crown and the great throne, with every resource at his disposal, who could give you anything your heart desired and you came to him in truth, he'd do all things to grant you the desire of your heart. So you, child of the king, are you praying to a father who is tight-fisted and stingy and unwilling to do what you ask? Or do you come to a good and gracious king, praying to an almighty sovereign who has kept every promise that he's ever made to you, who has given you every good thing that you have ever enjoyed, and who will always provide everything you need and most richly in Christ Jesus our Lord. Matthew 7 and 11, 7, 11, Jesus says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, hear it, how much more? How much more increasingly and abundantly? How will he not also with Christ graciously give you all things? How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things, hear it, to those who ask him? Your King Father says, come and ask. Nothing too great. You can never ask for too much if you ask in his will for that which he commands you to ask for. Everything you need for body and soul. He's willing. And that should give you an abundance of hope. Because the sovereign 
gives you hope. Verse 14, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life, and they do not set you before them. That in his hardship, and his persecution, he's not running away from God to try to figure out how he can do it himself. He runs to the Father. That in our afflictions and hardships and persecutions, we have no reason to fear because we know who God is and we know his grace and promise in Christ. And so David, even being brought before his own need for forgiveness and for grace, seeks the Lord now in repentance and faith, knowing that even in this moment, the sovereign will give what is best. And what will that sovereign give according to his promise? That his hope could be justified? He gives grace. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, O my King, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And the weird thing about studying this text, not only here but looking back at verse 5, is that in hearing that tempo of that statement, What do we do? Pastor, there's another half to that verse. There's more that's there, right? You're talking about God being good and gracious, but but we know the end. He's going to judge. And he's going to bring this, and he's going to do this. The second half isn't found here or in verse 5 for a reason. Because David doesn't need another reminder of God's judgment, even though that's where we want to go time and time again. We've got to be faithful. I get it. But in the moment of that crisis, what does he need to hear? For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. That's his longing. That's the medicine. Not a list of all of those other things. What he needs is the gospel. And so yes, sin, salvation, and service. We're not going to lose sight of it. We don't lose sight of what God is going to do in that last day. But he needs grace. He needs that reminder. And God does more than that. Because as he continues, now David gets to confess all that God has given to him, what he's promised to him. And so we're going to work through verses 16 and 17 fairly quickly in the prayer. But hear it, verse 16a, the sovereign gives his presence. That David prays for himself, turn to me and be gracious to me. Turn your face. Let me have fellowship with you. Let me know your nearness. He's praying for himself. Be gracious to me. Sovereign God, give strength. 16b, give your strength to your servant. Here David is saying, I need your help in my office, in my role, in my living. Give me strength to live in the faithfulness that you have given to me. 16c, the sovereign gives his salvation and save the son of your maidservant. Even David now is saying what? Save Israel. Save your people. So that now it's not just about his crisis and his struggle, but now he sees the whole. 
And his prayer changes from being one inwardly focused now to lifting his eyes to the Lord and seeing what he is doing. So that he can ask for the Lord to give three things. In verse 17. Give me your covenant blessing. Give me a sign of your favor. I know I don't deserve it, but show it to me again because you are good and it's who you are. Give your witness, not only to me, but to the world. That they're going to be shamed for denying who you are and casting off your rule. Show them and show me. And then give me help and comfort. Because you, O oh Lord, and listen to what he does. He, he puts it past tense. Because if this is what you have done in the past, God, you're going to keep doing that. You have helped and have comforted me. And you are my help and you are my comfort. And you will help. And you will always be my comfort. And that's what you, child of the king, have been given. That's what you've been taught. That's what this God who hears you and every one of your needs and your hurts and your longings, that's what he provides you. And that God who gives holds nothing back. He has never kept anything good from you according to his will. So if something's been kept from you, it was for your good and for his glory. And so if this is how he hears and teaches and gives, children of the king, what reason do we have for not seeking him in our prayers? For not seeking him who will provide every need in Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. So come. Wait upon the Lord. You in Jesus Christ, come. In true faith, believing that he hears and is able to do far more than you could hope or imagine. Because he is a good, faithful, almighty sovereign. He is your Father, for the sake of his Son. And in your distress and persecution, your trials, in any of the needs you come to, no matter how old or young you are, you can come with a singular confidence. Not about who you are, not about how godly you've been, not how many years of service that are yours, none of it. You come before that Father with one singular confidence. You enter boldly into his throne room no matter what is going on with one confidence. I'm a child of the King, a child of the King, with Jesus my Savior. I'm a child of the King. He is a gracious sovereign. He is a faithful covenant-keeping king. Amen. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth and the beauty of the psalm, for the life of David and what he examples for us, for that call to confidence, for that call to consecration, that call to the deep trust and faith 
like children before their fathers. Lord, you are good and gracious. You are a good and gracious king. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and tender mercies. You give and you give and you give again. You teach and you teach and you teach again. You hear and you hear and you never stop hearing. So Lord, even tonight would you turn that we would come and call out to you, that we would humble ourselves before the lessons you teach, that Father, we would come in great praise of you, asking for all that we need, knowing that you will be near us, that you will strengthen us, that you will save us, that you will keep your promises, that you will speak your word into our hearts, and that you will help us in this life and comfort us for the one to come. So Lord, might we come. May your Holy Spirit work in us that we would come. May the beauty of Christ lead us to come. And Father, may this be a word spoken not only to us, but to people all around this world who need the hope of the gospel. And so, Father, as we give our gifts tonight for the missions fund, Father, may the gospel advance and may the wonder and beauty of our sovereign King, our covenant-keeping God, and our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, be known. For we ask it in his name. Amen.